can take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today is in Romans chapter 8, and we'll read that together here in just a little bit. But as we think about today and as we think about just kind of where we've been in Scripture, where we are in life and the things that God's done for us and just the experiences that we've had, I'm just struck by the fact that, that it's just so important for us to just stop for a moment sometimes and remember the stories we tell. I don't know if you realize this or not, but the story you believe about who you are shapes so much about the choices that you make. The stories you remember, the stories you tell, the stories of your loved ones, the story of your family, the story of your career, the story of your marriage, all of those individual stories add up to become the story of you. And what you believe about who you are really influences every choice that you make. And sometimes I think we see ourselves clearly. We believe right things about ourselves. And some things, sometimes I think we tell ourselves stories that, about ourselves or about others or about circumstances that, that just aren't true. And so it's just so devastating when we tell untrue stories about ourselves. Now, you know people who are really good storytellers, right? Like Keith Davis. Keith Davis is an incredible storyteller. He tells incredible stories. He's also a fisherman. And in the stories that, his t that he tells, frequently the pictures show that his fish are this big. But somehow in the telling of the story... The fish changes, not just in size, but in number, right? You've, we, we all have those kind of fisherman tales, right? So Keith tells great stories. Memorial Day, this weekend that we celebrate, is really about the story we tell, right? We remember the loved and lost. We remember those men and women who have given what Abraham Lincoln called the last full measure of devotion so that this liberty that we have could be safe and secure, so that we could come into a room like today and celebrate our Heavenly Father because our, our ability to do that has been guarded and defended by people who have been willing to, to, to make an incredible sacrifice for us. We get to remember the sacrifice of Christ because of their sacrifice to protect that opportunity. What an incredible story for us to tell and for us to remember. Uh, there's a man in our church um, and he's not in the room today, but he frequently joins us online. But Earl Spickelmeyer today celebrates his 95th birthday. And he's, I think he's watching online. It'll be either this service or the next service. But could we just say, happy birthday, Earl? What an incredible thing. And here's what I see in Earl. Earl is 95 years of faithfulness to God to his family, and to his church. And to this day, even though he may not be in this room with us on a weekly basis, he is praying for you and for me on a regular basis. And because of the history of who he is, this church, this place, our ministries together, our ability to influence and affect the world with the gospel is not the same and will never be the same because of the influence of a man like Earl Spickelmeyer. I've always teased him because no matter how relaxed we are as a church, Earl always shows up to church in a suit. He just is always dressed in the nines, uh, dressed to the nines. And so at some point, he's going to walk through this room and we're going to play the song Sharp Dress Man by ZZ Top, just, for, just in honor of Earl Spickelmeyer. At some point, 
that's going to happen. The stories we tell matter. And, you know, you can make a story good or bad, right? Even on Memorial Day, there are some parts of our American story that we might maybe not want to tell. Parts of our American story that we might want to focus on just for the purpose of making some things look bad, right? We might, we might want to do that. We might face that temptation of doing that. On Friday night, my oldest daughter, my oldest, she got married. And it was an incredible storybook wedding. And I'm just so proud of her and Peyton, and it's just, it was such, and you as a church, you just honored her and our family, and I'm just so thankful for that. And, and when I think about the story of their relationship, uh, their very first date was on May 26th, and four years later, they got engaged on May 26th, and then this year, they got married on May 26th. That could be the story of Peyton being this hopeless romantic who is pursuing my daughter. Or it could be the story of some guy who's desperately trying not to forget his anniversary. <laughs> so, you know, how you shape a story matters, and the story we, stories we tell ourselves, they matter. When you look at Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8 is one of those books, it's one of those chapters in the Bible that is so filled with so many good doctrines, so much good theology, so many good stories of who we are in Christ that it's hard to just, it's going to be really hard in all honesty to encapsulate what I really hope we catch in the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8 in a 30 or 35 minute time frame. And so I hope that today that you'll listen quickly and that you'll think deeply and that you'll pay really close attention to the words of Romans chapter 8 because here's what happening in the story that's being told in Romans chapter 8. Paul has written this incredible letter to Rome, to the church, to all of the saved people who are in the city of Rome. And what he's really doing is he's really writing out, this is the history of salvation. And in Romans chapter 1, we see that every person in all of time, throughout all of humanity, we see how we knowingly and willingly rejected God. In the history of salvation, the first step is that humanity, knowingly and willingly, we reject God. And then God goes, I'm not ready to settle for that. That's not going to be the story of my people. That's not going to be the story of, of this universe that I've created. My story is going to be a redemptive story is what God's decision is. So he chooses the children of Israel to become instruments of his grace in the world. And so the children of Israel, if you've been reading through us in our daily reading plan, you've been reading the history of Israel in the Old Testament, and now we're in Romans. We've been reading through Romans, and you've seen how as instruments of his grace, God gave the law to the children of Israel so that they could show the world who God is and tell, tell the world this is what it's like to work with and to serve with and, and, to, and to be subject to our Heavenly Father. And as instruments of His grace, they received this law, and that law, while insufficient, lit the way for the grace of God that came through Jesus Christ. And so you see this incredible story unfold where humanity knowingly and willingly rejects God. God chooses the children of Israel to become instruments of His grace. The children of Israel get, a little, they get that a little wrong. They focus too much on the law and not enough on the grace. They keep it all to themselves. 
and they don't share it with the rest of the world. It's like they just ignored their family business. Your family business is to be a nation of priests and priests to the nations. You're the nation who's supposed to show God to the world and show the world to God. And they, they, they failed in that. And so Paul keeps telling the story, and this is how Jesus made salvation, not just available to one small group of people. This is how he made it available to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And ultimately, this is how Jesus made salvation available to you and to me. So in Romans, we see this incredible story of salvation. It's the history of, of salvation that's unfolding. And now there is this incredible reality for everyone who is a follower of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I've been a believer since I've been about nine years old. I was nine years old when I placed my faith in Christ, which really means all of my best mistakes all of the worst things I've ever done or said, and all of the best mistakes I've ever made, all of the biggest, baddest, worst, I did after I became a believer. That may not be true for some of you. Some of you may have become believers later in life. Some of you may be like me, and you have a story like mine, where you placed your faith in Christ as a young child, and so now you've got, well, don't we all have baggage, mistakes we've made, decisions we shouldn't have made, people we shouldn't have pursued, opportunities we've missed, lots and lots of regrets. I mean, we all carry those things, right? And they all become a part of who we are, and they all become a part of our story. And so today, as we look at Romans chapter 8, I just want to ask you, when you think of yourself in relationship to God, what story do you tell? What story do you remember because where Paul has been moving in Romans, from Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 7, is he's telling this incredible history of how God just simply could not stand for his world to live in rejection and rebellion of him. So he made a way for your salvation and mine. But it's so much better than that. Because salvation is only the starting point. After our salvation becomes our, after our salvation, what comes next is our transformation, where we begin to know and to understand the grace of God in intimate ways, in ways like we've never experienced before. And now, instead of always rejecting the things of God, we have an opportunity to open ourselves up to the reality of who God is, to see things clearly rather than to see through a glass darkly and to begin walking in a way that's not simply about avoiding the sin that hurts us, but stepping into the righteous acts of faith that lead to life. And whether or not we choose to do that is frequently influenced by the story you tell yourself about who you are, about who God is about what God's desire for your life is. And it would be really easy to focus on all the sinfulness of who we are because I know how broken I am. And there are moments, there's times when I need, by conviction, for the sake of confession, I need to be honest about the sinful, broken places in my life. But Romans chapter 8 and the rest of Scripture says, that's an echo of who I once was not the reality of who I am today. And so I can walk in a kind of victory that's just very different than what's possible without Christ. And so as we read Romans chapter 8 together here in a minute, 
I want us to recognize something. I believe the vast majority of us in the room today, and maybe many of us who are watching online, I believe we're mostly people who are followers of Christ, who are believers in Him, who have received the Spirit into our lives and we're following after Him. But I know that there may be people watching or people who are in the room who have yet to come to faith in Christ, and I'm so glad you're here. If you're going to explore what it means to be a Jesus person, this is a great place to come and ask those questions and to find those answers. And, and, and I hope that you will ask those questions. And I hope you'll recognize that what I describe today applies to Christ followers to people who are already Jesus' people. And as someone who's exploring what it means to be a follower of Christ, they're the kinds of things that don't yet apply to you. But they could. They don't yet apply to you, but they could. And for everyone else in the room who's already a follower of Christ, this is the story of you in relationship to your heavenly Father. Now, before we read Romans chapter 8 together, I want us to just notice something, first of all. It's, it really is a thick, rich, deep passage of Scripture. So I want to point some of things out to you before we begin reading, because I'm just going to do a survey of Romans chapter 8. I, there are far better preachers than me that have invested hours and hours and hours, like 50, 60, 70 hours, trying to explain in a period of 60 or 70 sermons the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8. So we're not going to do that today, <laughs> but we are going to try to do a survey of it. But as we do that, I want you to notice some things. Just be on the lookout for some things as we read through the passage. In this passage, you see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see the Trinity represented in Romans chapter 8. You see the effects of faith, hope, and love in this passage of Scripture. You see how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit... Using faith, hope, and love influences our mind, our will, and emotions. You see how He impacts our body, our soul, and our spirit. And it's all found right there in Romans chapter 8. So we're going to do something a little bit different today. Frequently when we read God's Word as an act of worship and out of reverence and honor for God's Word, we stand when we read, and at the end of it, at the, as an act of worship, we just respond, this is the Word of the Lord, and praise be to God. We'll still do that second part, but today, because this passage is just so, so thick, it's so rich, it's so deep and so meaningful, I want to read it all. And since it's 39 verses, I think you should stay seated. Is that Okay. All right, let's look at Romans chapter 8. We're going to read all, all 39 verses. And as we read, look for those things. This is the story of who you are as a follower of Christ in relationship to who God is. You'll find God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You'll find faith, hope, and love. You'll find how that influences our mind, will, and emotions, our body, soul, and spirit. You'll find all of those things. And so just be on the lookout for those things as we read. And listen to this. This is just incredible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who, are, who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called, whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. 
We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Did you see it? There's a whole lot to be seen in that passage. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, faith, hope, love, they all play together And they all play together for those of us who are followers of Christ, for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, they all play together to become this incredible story of who you are and who I am in Christ. So I think of Romans chapter 8 as the great eight. And it's just so good. I hope that you'll take time after this is over sometime this week, not just to read this passage, but maybe to study it for yourself. Maybe do more than that. Meditate on it. Take time to write one verse at a time out. See if over a period of time, maybe between now and Christmas or between now and the end of the year, if you wrote a verse a day and then reviewed a verse a day and then you read it just one at a time, by the end of this year, you could have all of Romans chapter 8 memorized. And what a great tool that would be inside your own lives because I believe we're not guilty of telling ourselves the story that represents the best of us. I think we're far more guilty of telling the story about who we are that represents the worst of us. Isn't it just easier to find the bad things in our government, in our economics, in our neighbor, in our friend? Isn't it just easier to find the bad things in ourselves than it is to find the good things? Maybe as followers of Christ, we should set our minds in a different place and recognize that God has done something in us and through us that can't be explained because of us, and it's the renewing and refreshing of our mind. And so with Romans chapter 8 being the great eight, there are eight things, and we're going to hit them real fast, but there's eight things. There are eight truths inside this passage about who you are and in your story that we just really need to pay attention to. And so every time you think of your story, one of these eight things is relevant to any thought you might have about yourself or about anyone else who believes. And so listen quick and think deep because we're going to go real quick on these things. But here's the eight things in Romans chapter 8 that define who we are in Christ. The very first one is in Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. You are not guilty. That's the very first thing you need to know about who you are in Christ. Jesus Christ has forgiven you of the worst thing you will ever do on the worst day of your life and everything in between. On the day you placed your faith in Christ, He looked into the future, He looked into your past, He looked at that moment, and God said, because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross at Calvary, you're not guilty of the worst thing you'll ever do on the worst day of your life and everything else in between. As a matter of fact, the Bible uses the word justified to say this is what it means for you to not be guilty. It means that the punishment for your sin has not been poured out on you. It's been poured out in Jesus, and you have been justified. You have been made just as though you have never sinned. So you are not guilty 
in the eyes of Christ. That's Romans chapter 1, or Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 is where you see that. And it's actually interesting in the structure of Romans chapter 8. It's like Paul says, here's all these things I need to know, I need you to know about your story. And then he gets to the very end of Romans chapter 8, and it's like he gives a, a recap. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 1, 8 verse 1 says, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. The very first thing you need to know about your story is that you are not guilty. Not because you haven't sinned, but because the penalty and punishment for your sin has been paid on the cross at Calvary through Jesus Christ. The second thing is, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you've been designed, you've been redeemed, you've been reshaped to think differently. Believers think differently. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 uh, in, in Romans chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And look again at Romans chapter 8, verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God's given you the ability to think differently. We're going to see this in an even deeper way in Romans chapter 12, if you're keeping up with our daily Bible readings when you get there, that with the renewing of our mind, we can think less like people who are down to earth, and we can think more like those who can see all of eternity. God sees the beginning and the end and the middle, and He sees everything before that and everything after that, and you can have the mind of Christ. That doesn't mean we're going to know instantly everything God knows, but we can set our mind not on earthly things. We can set our mind on heavenly things. I had a friend named Mike Compton. He was my college pastor. And he would say frequently that man's major mistake is that we give primary effort to secondary concerns. And the way that we fix that, instead of giving primary effort to secondary concerns, if we would just focus our eyes on Jesus, if we would focus our eyes on Jesus, we could gaze at our Savior. But the temptation is to focus our eyes on this world. And the problem becomes we gaze at the problems of this world and it causes us to only glance at our Savior. But when we gaze at our Savior, the problems of this world are put into the right perspective. That which seems so huge, so big, so overwhelming, so incomprehensible, so unattainable, so unachievable. We're gazing at our Savior, and in light of who He is, there is nothing that compares. And there is no one that can overcome us. And there is no thing that can't be defeated in us sinfully. And there's nothing, there's no one outside of us who can bring a charge against us because we're not, we don't have to gaze, we don't have to glance even back at our problems. We gaze at our problems, we only glance at our Savior, but we could because we can think differently. You can. You should. Instead of looking for the bad, you can look for the good, but it's so much better than just that. As I gaze at my Savior, I come to know the world and myself, not through my eyes, but through His. I shouldn't have looked at that light. Now I'm completely blind. <laughs> so first, you're not guilty. Second, you think differently. Third, you're a cherished member of God's family. You're a cherished member of God's family. Look at verses 
12 through 17. Verses 12 through 17 say, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You've been adopted into the family of God. Do you understand how big that is? Think about your own family and just the traditions you have. There's so many things about your family that you could be proud of. Maybe because of your family, you walk a little more upright because of who your dad is, because of who your mom is, because of the money they have or the success they have or the position they have. Maybe, maybe you think to yourself, I act this way because this is the kind of family I am in. Maybe you come from a family that is a kind, they, there's kind of just a noble presence to them. And maybe that noble presence has led to you being arrogant or entitled. Maybe it's led you to be faithful and appreciative. The family you're in has so much influence over how you think about your story and who you are. Maybe the family you come from is just so broken and just so mean and just so cruel that you are trying to stiff arm everything about the history of your family. That's true for parenting, right? When it comes to your parents, whether you're kids or whether you're adult kids, you'll either receive the things that they've done, you'll either receive those things into your life and you'll look up and you'll go, man, I'm so proud I get to be like them in this way, or you'll rebel against who they are and what they've done. And the beauty of becoming an adult is you get to, you get to be like a selective sponge. You get to absorb all the great things that your family did for you and you get to reject all the things that are less than great. You have the privilege of being able to do that. My daughter got married. She doesn't have to build a married life like mine and Londa's or like Jeff and Kim Russell's. They together are a brand new creation and they get to build a marriage that's built with the best of who both of these families are. And they have the freedom to reject the worst of who both of these families are. Our family influences so much about who we are and how we think of ourselves and our own story. And this right here says, you're a cherished member of God's family. You've been adopted into the family of God. My father was adopted. And some of you have heard, this story, heard me tell this story before. Uh, his biological mom and dad were just very, very young, and it was the 1930s, and they weren't married. And that was that time when you just didn't have a baby outside of wedlock. And so they got married for, I think, all of six days, and then they had the wedding annulled, and then his biological mom just kind of disappeared from her community for a little while, and then when she came back, she was different, but she didn't have a baby because she chose to put my dad up for adoption. And I used to tease my dad a little bit because um, had he stayed with his biological mom, his name would have been, we were able to find who she was later in his life, his name would have been Harley Jean which is just the ultimate redneck name for uh, us in Oklahoma, right? It's like, it's a noble Harley Jean, you know. He was adopted, though, by Oval and Winnie Balthrop. And so his name changed from Harley Jean to Charles Edward. Well, Charles Edward, that's the name of a king, right? Charles, and then my, my, my adoptive grandfather, Oval, he was Oval Edward Balthrop. I carry... The name, he, my dad, Charles Edward Balthrop. I carry the name Chad Edward Balthrop. 
My oldest son carries the name Cademan Edward Balthrop. My name changed. My name changed. My son's name changed. My whole family name has changed because of the love of Oval and Winnie Balthrop. He could have grown up as a child that was illegitimate in a community that rejected him. But because he was adopted, he grew up in a family that loved him and gave him a noble name. And now my entire family history is different because of it. You've been adopted into the family of God, and no matter what family you come from and how ugly or how pretty that history is, being in God's family is far superior to anything you can ever imagine, and you are now called by the noble name of Jesus Christ. And against that name, there is no other name given among men by which we must and can be saved. There is no name higher than that name of Jesus, and that is who you're in, in a family with. You are a cherished member of God's family. Look at Romans chapter 8. Look at verse 33, and then I'll have you bounce. Romans eight thirty-three: Who shall bring a charge against God, God's elect? And then just bounce back for just a minute to verse 12 through 17. Excuse me, verses 18. Let's start, let's start at 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. When you think about your story, the story you tell yourself about who you are and how that influences everything you think and feel and the way you act, the way you treat other people, you're not guilty, you think differently, you're a cherished member of God's family, and your suffering leads to glory. Your suffering leads to glory. Now, none of us likes to suffer. I don't, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be a martyr. I, I'm pretty sure I don't want a paper cut. <laughs> I don't want to do that. But do you understand that for a follower of Christ, suffering is different? For someone who is lost, the only end of suffering is something worse. The, let me say that again. For someone who is not a follower of Christ, there is only one end to suffering, and it is something far worse than anything you'll ever experience in this world. The closest a lost person will ever get to heaven is this broken world. It's the closest, the closest you'll ever get. So I understand why we avoid suffering. I mean, first off, suffering's painful, and it's terrible, and it stinks, and it's hurtful, and I hate it. For a lost person, the end of your suffering is only something worse. Because here, in your suffering, is the closest you'll ever get to heaven. But for a follower of Christ, for someone who stands in the family of God, your suffering just like Christ's, leads to glory. The suffering that you have has a purpose, and it's to make and to reshape and to remind. And on the day that your suffering leads to you closing your eyes here because you're closing your eyes in death, when you open your eyes in eternity, you don't open your eyes to a place of eternal suffering. You open your eyes to a place of eternal glory because of what Christ did for you. If this earth 
is the closest, if the brokenness of this world is the closest that a lost person will ever get to heaven, this broken earth is the closest that a saved person will ever get to hell. Your suffering becomes glory. Some of you may have seen pictures of Harrison Mosby after his surgery on social media. The pain he is going through is undescribable. The loss that he must feel is inescapable and unbelievable. Yet I look at every one of those pictures and he's smiling. And I read the words that he says about his faith and about who God is. And he speaks as a man with boldness of faith and confidence in his God. And he's going through a level of suffering that most of us will never even come close to. Why can he have a confidence like that? Why can he smile in a picture like that? Because for a believer in Christ, your suffering leads to glory. You're not guilty. You think differently. You're a cherished member of God's family. Your suffering leads to glory. And then look at verse 26 and 27. Verse 26 and 27, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Jump over to verse 34 at the same time. So we just read that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is praying for us. Verse 34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus Christ is praying for you right now. The Holy Spirit is praying in our, in, in our inability. I don't know what to pray for Harrison sometimes. I just don't know. When someone comes, I, I've had people in my life who have been so deeply wounded and so deeply hurt by, by other people. I just don't know what to pray sometimes. Romans chapter 8 says, the Holy Spirit of God fills in the blanks for me. When I don't know what to pray, the Spirit of God in me prays for me. And when I'm experiencing a suffering that's in, unimaginable, when I'm walking through a circumstance, when I don't know what to do and all I see is my weakness and all I see is my failures, Jesus Christ stands boldly at the throne of God representing you. God, help the boy. God, I took the punishment for his failures. All that weakness he feels, I'll own that. God, would you give him the strength to do what needs to be done, to say what needs to be said, to stand in front of the enemy for his family, for his friends, to step into his community and continue to be the instrument of your grace into this world that's just getting harder and harder. Jesus Christ is praying for you. You're not guilty, you think differently, you're a cherished member of God's family, your suffering leads to glory, you're prayed for specifically, you have a significant destiny 
Look at verse 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You have this majestic, magnificent purpose that God's designed for you. And here's what it is. For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, that's your destiny, right? Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. He made it just as if you've never sinned. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Remember, we say it all the time. God, would you do something in us and through us that can't possibly be explained because of us? Right there. He's done it. You have a significant destiny. You walk in spaces that no preacher will ever be able to walk, and you carry the light of God's grace everywhere you go, on the ball field, in your workplace, in your home. Wherever you are, you get to be an an instrument of God's grace. You have a significant destiny. And then verse 37. Verse 37 says this. Yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In your story, I don't know what your defeats are. I don't know what's tripped you up. I don't know what's hurt you. I don't know who said something to you to break you. I don't know. But according to Romans 8, 37, we are more than conquerors in Christ. So your purpose, living inside your purpose, it brings victory. But it's not just any kind of victory. It says you are more than conquerors in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be more than conquerors? Well, winners will win a game. But a champion wins every game. Yesterday, I got to watch the OU softball team win their 48th straight win. They are dominating softball and have for years. They're not just winning a moment, and they're not just winning a game. They have proven themselves to be champions. And our ability to be more than conquerors is far better than that. You know why? Because in the original Greek, what it really means to be more than conquerors is that you so thoroughly defeat your opponent that your opponent now agrees with you and becomes one of your biggest fans. That would be like me saying the OSU girls softball team has won 47 games and everybody in the SEC going, yes, boomer. That's exactly what that would be like. We so thoroughly conquer our enemies that they become our fans. That's ultimately what God does, right? Philippians chapter 2 talks about who Jesus is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That won't be conscription. That won't be a forced bowing. Everyone in the universe throughout all of time will look at Jesus and go, whether I rejected him or accepted him while I was here alive on earth, in that moment when they see Jesus for who he really is, not, not being forced, they will voluntarily go, oh my goodness, you God. And the only appropriate response is to bend the knee. We are more than conquerors. And then here's the best part. You're not guilty. You think differently. You're a cherished member of God's family. Your suffering leads to glory. You're prayed for specifically. You have a significant destiny. Your purpose brings victory. And finally, you are loved relentlessly. Verse 38. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are loved relentlessly. And there is nothing that anyone, including you, as a follower of Christ, can do to be separated from God's love. Ultimately, the book of Romans is the history of salvation. Ultimately, the Bible, Scripture, becomes the divine story of God's relentless affection for you. And as a follower of Christ, on your worst day, on the darkest night, in the most difficult season, one of those eight things you should probably think about, and maybe more than one. Maybe you should remind yourself daily, this is who I am, and not walk in arrogance, but walk in humility, in appreciation for the thing that God has done for you in your story. And then those of you who aren't yet Christ followers, I just have one question. Why wouldn't you want that to be your story too? Let's bow our heads to pray. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to what God's Word has said today and to just say, God, thank you for who you are and what you've done in my life. And one of these eight things, maybe, maybe multiple of these eight things, as a follower of Christ, you may be struggling with, well, what a great opportunity to come to the altar and pray. Maybe you need to talk with someone and you want someone to pray with you or for you. There'll be people at, at, every, at, every, at the end of every aisle in every direction. You don't have to come forward. You can go to the back. But there'll be people who, will be, who are ready, willing, and able to pray with you and to pray for you and to talk to you about any of these things and to just say, hey God, I'm with you and for you and just to remind you that Jesus and his spirit are praying for you too. There's going to be people all around the room who can do that as we sing. And then for those of you who have yet to place your faith in God, maybe you'd like to do that and you want to talk to somebody about what that means and how you do that. By all means, talk to someone around you. Go to one of these people who's standing at the door, ready, willing, and able to pray for you and just say, I'd like to know who Jesus is. I'd like to place my faith in Christ. How do I do that? They would love to have the privilege of sharing that with you today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are and for what you've done. I'm so grateful that the story of my life is different and for so many reasons. I pray that you would help every follower of Christ to walk in these eight things, to recognize when we're down, when we're attacked, when we're alone, when we're isolated, when we feel helpless and hurt, would you remind us of the truth of who we are and that the story you're writing in us is both divine and exceptional and never-ending? So help us, Father. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Let's stand together. Let's respond to God. And if you're one of those people who's praying for us, please go ahead and move to your spots if you would.